the percent of, of wildfires that are man-made have gone up in the 11 years that I've been here. And so the other part of that is not only are there more structures and there more exposure to be damaged in these fires, there's more people in those areas that could even potentially cause fires. So it's a kind of a double whammy. Welcome back to Core Conversations, a Core Logic podcast, where we tour the property market to investigate how economics, climate change, governmental policy, and technology affect everyday life. I am your host, May Claire Bolton Smith, and I'm just as curious as you are about everything that happens in our industry. Wildfire season is in full swing, and due to climate change, U.S. states that are already vulnerable to wildfires are seeing increased losses. Additionally, areas that have historically not experienced a lot of wildfire activity are seeing devastating wildfire losses. Add to this the appearance of El Nino, which brings warmer, drier weather to the U.S. and Canada, and this season is primed for wildfire activity. But not all homes in wildfire-vulnerable regions are created equally. So depending on the location of the house, the wildfire risk may be lower than a house that's just a few miles away. So how can you know what the home's risk profile is? Is it possible to determine whether a low-risk home is still vulnerable and to what degree? So to talk about wildfire risk and what the losses could look like for the 2023 season, we invited CoreLogic's chief actuary, Howard Kunst. Howard, welcome to Core Conversations. Thank you, Clear. Happy to be here to talk about one of my favorite subjects. One of your favorite subjects. And you and I work really closely together. And we, this is the first time you've ever been here. So I'm excited to get to chat with you about this. Before we talk about wildfire risk, I wanted to remind our listeners that we want to help you keep pace with the property market. To make it easy, we curate the latest insight and analysis for you on our social media, where you can find us using the handle at CoreLogic on Facebook and LinkedIn, or at CoreLogic Inc. on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Instagram. But now, let's get back to Mayclair and Howard. Let's just start talking about wildfire risk. We've had a number of podcasts. We've talked about different aspects of wildfire risk. But from just the basis calculation of risk, how do we compute or calculate wildfire risk? It really comes down to the two steps. The, the first step is we look at all the, all the vegetation and, and grids across the United States and assess the, the vulnerability of, of, of those grids. And it depends on the species of vegetation that's in there and how dense it is. Okay. So we look at that information and a number of different uh, characteristics that go into the assessment of those grids. And then ultimately what it comes down to is, is for any structure in a wildfire state, what is its proximity to that risk? Okay. Obviously, the closer you are to the risk or if you are, if you are right inside of, of high risk, your score is going to be very high. And as you move farther away from, from the, the vegetation and that high risk, um, you become less susceptible to winds blowing embers, which is the majority of where damage comes from, from wildfires. And so the farther away from, from that risk you get, the, the lower your score goes. Okay, so we're talking about risk scores. How exactly is a risk score used and who uses it? So if we're thinking all of all of our listeners here, is this something that the average homeowner would use or have, or is it primarily different industries? Who Who's using these, these risk scores? So the primary user are the insurance companies. And initially, uh, the wildfire risk score was used predominantly for underwriting and risk selection. Okay. So depending on how the risk appetite was of an individual, individual um, homeowner's insurer, 
uh, they would choose how to use the score and what different underwriting actions they would take based on the, the score. Uh, and, and again, we have a, a great deal of variation in how they use the score relative to underwriting. But as they became more comfortable with the score and the validation we do that shows you know, the, the differential in, in risk from a, a low score up to an extreme, they, they're also now able to use that information to help them rate the policies mm-hmm. uh, you know, to set what the prices are. Uh, using some of the validation we do, and also using uh, the our probabilistic wildfire models to calibrate, we're able to uh, provide information to help them, you know, determine what the various rate level differences are for the risk. Okay, you mentioned probabilistic models. I know in a previous podcast we did talk about you know how probabilistic models are used versus risk scores, but I I want to just kind of clarify that a little bit here as well. Can you just talk a little bit about like who would use a risk score versus who would use a probabilistic model and how they are used, you know, together or separately? So the scores are really useful in a homogenous type book of business, like homeowners. Things that you're you're doing, the what you're writing is very very similar across your your, your book of business, and and the scores are, are very easily used within a a standard like underwriting system can just be very easily integrated into a system for, for underwriting or for pricing. Okay. But when you get into more complex uh, structures that you want to know, you know, differences based on some of the building characteristics or, or you know, large commercial uh, structures, you know, the probabilistic models provide you that extra information of what can happen and what the various loss levels are. Uh, the other part that kind of gets mixed in there is, is within risk management. And we talk about risk management, that's just understanding what your concentrations of risks are, where you have them. You can use the risk scores for that, but you can also use the probabilistic models to, to estimate, you know, mm-hmm. areas that have a, a high concentration of, of, of where, where those events can be. And, and you can understand what are those rare events that, that impact large numbers of, of, of structures and, and ultimately you know, higher losses, you know, for the, for those events. Right. So a bit, almost more of a, a portfolio view of where the or, risks yeah, the are. Portfolio view, yeah. Find, finding, finding those, those areas that, that could ultimately have very significant loss dollars in right. an event or in a year. Right. Understanding of a broader risk differentiation across a portfolio. Yep. If you're curious to hear more about wildfire risk scores and probabilistic models, as well as how property data can help manage the California insurance crisis, tune into episode 70. That was released on August 16th. Um, Okay, so if we if we're looking at, you know, risk scores specifically, you know, you see your score, it's 20, it's 80. How long is that score valid? Well, unfortunately, be- because of growth of vegetation, so, I mean, the score can change a little bit, but, but normally uh, we keep the, uh, the, the vegetation, you know, to understand what the fuel loads are, uh, are updated every year, sometimes mm-hmm. even quarterly. So, I mean, the, the scores are good for a year. Most, most companies will pull a score every year um, and, and they can change significantly if, if there's uh, you know, if there's a fire or if there's been a major, um, a new subdivision put in that, that a lot of uh, new of, of um, vegetation has been cleared that would reduce the score. So there are things that happen that can, can change the score uh, downward. 
in, in a year to year. So we always recommend that that insurance companies you know, review the wildfire risk score you know every year at at the uh, you know the the date of the the policy. And you know, in areas where we do see big fires, big devastating fires, we would then update the model so that they reflect the current state. Yes. The the good news okay. is we also keep in in our in our um, metafiles that you know what that old score was, what that what the high risk you know ultimately can be because we know when the fuel the vegetation goes back, we you know, most insurance companies and most people still want to know what that long-term risk level is. And sure. it will it will go down from a fire, but it will go back up in, in a few years to, to back where it was. Gotcha. Okay. So it's something that we provide both scores to, to our clients? Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit more about these, um, these risk scores. We kind of alluded to the fact that it's a, a range. So let's talk a little bit about the range. Like what would we, how would we translate something as this is low risk, this is immediate, th- medium risk, this is high risk, this is extreme risk. Like how would we kind of define each of those categories? Well, so we've, we've done a lot of validation in the model and we can see other than with, with some of the extreme events that have happened recently, that generally speaking, like a, a location with the risk score of, of 50 or below rarely, if ever, has any any impact. So that's what okay. we would consider low risk. And, and across the, the states that we that we have wildfire risk score in, uh, the low risk locations account for about 91 percent of oh, wow. all locations in those states. OK, wow. That and it varies by state, obviously. Yeah. So then what would we see would be like kind of the medium, high, extreme risk? So we see about 2% is in the moderate, okay. and then about 35 would be what we could call high risk, and another 35 would be what we call the extreme risk. And extreme okay. risk would be scores 81 to 100. So really, it is a relatively small number of properties that are in these very high and extreme risk areas, yet I know that we see a lot of fires that burn and the, they're not just burning the high risk areas. They're not just burning these areas that are high and extreme. Obviously, the probability or the likelihood of something happening to those areas is potentially a lot higher, but low risk doesn't mean no risk. So this is something I, I've talked a lot on this podcast of buying a new home. And uh, when we were looking for a new home, we are we did move to Southern California and areas that are very high risk wildfire. Um, I looked at a number of properties that I'm like, I'm not living there because you can see the vegetation just growing right near it. And I just knew that it would be higher risk. Um, the house that we did end up buying, um, I what I ran our wildfire risk score and we have a risk score of 22. So it is very low, relatively speaking. Um, and maybe six weeks, two months after we moved into this house, uh, there was a wildfire three blocks from our house. So that was my, you know, firsthand look of like low risk doesn't mean no risk. Um, fortunately with that event, it was contained very quickly. It is, you know, pretty much in the heart of a city here. Um, but there was one home that sustained some damage, fortunately, not much more than that. And it, it, it really came down to the people had propane tanks in their backyard and embers hit them. And that is just so from a, you know, personal awareness, mitigation, preparedness, things that you can do, like 
that's something like how can you be aware of your surroundings and what can happen to help you, you know, make sure your your property is as safe as possible. It's that time again. Grab a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We're going to do the numbers in the housing market. Here's what you need to know. Housing prices are beginning to rebound. Nationally, home prices increased by 2.5% year over year in July. In looking ahead, the CoreLogic HPI forecast indicates that home prices will increase by 3.5% from July 2023 to July 2024. Nevertheless, the anticipated continuation of higher mortgage rates has weighed down price increase forecasts over the next year. This is especially true in less affordable markets. However, the extreme inventory shortage of the Western U.S. may offset this pressure. Speaking of the West, Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Texas, Utah, Washington, and Wyoming all saw annual declines in home prices. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, Vermont, New Hampshire, and New Jersey all saw the highest year-over-year increases in home prices. The city of Miami continues to lead the pack, posting 9% year-over-year gains. And that's The Sip. See you next time. Let's talk about how, like, well, first of all, in there may be an area like in Santa Rosa and, and Paradise where the overall area may be really high risk, but there are certain areas that have lower risk um, and how they may still burn. And then, you know, maybe even moving into like what happened in Maui, how we had an area that was relatively low risk in a place that we have not heard or seen fires in many years and become just devastated. So yeah, can you kind of talk about all of that? Sure. I think what we, we see happening uh, in recently in some of those the events that you mentioned is we've seen extreme wind. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we, we know we model and we know that, that the embers from wildfires can blow into uh, to areas. And, and sometimes in the past, we, we've seen them fly. If, if I recall the numbers, you know, sometimes a half mile or, yeah. or, or more, but, it, but they generally don't fly that far. But, but what we've seen also happening with these high wind events is that all it takes is for one structure to start on fire, and mm-hmm. then it becomes an urban conflagration. And okay. it's, not the, it's not the wildfire that, that's spreading. It, it's, it's a house is burning, and, and then it's spreading to the neighbor's house, and it just keeps going and going and going as house to house. Right. And so it's it's not it's it's still the, the the proximate cause is still the wildfire, but it's really an urban conflagration event caused by the wildfire. So it it it's a very extreme situation within the wildfire you know hazard. Yeah, and that's what we've been been seeing. Um, so the the other part of that is is even though as we mentioned these homes may not be high risk, they may be lower moderate risk. Um, we're still seeing a lot more um, in in the western states. We're seeing more and more homes being built mm-hmm. in these higher risk areas or, or adjacent to these higher risk areas. Mm-hmm. So just the number of potential structures that could be damaged in these events, even if they are relatively low risk, are still there and in, in, in you know closer to harm's way than than homes were in the past. Right. Right. So it really is, we've talked a lot on this podcast in different episodes on the wildland urban interface, the the WUI as it's known. And it's the fact that those are the areas where people are building all of these new homes because 
you know, that's the only place where there's still land to build homes in a lot of the cities, especially in California. And it's those areas that are pretty high to extreme risk. And that's where they're building a lot of homes, which is contributing to us seeing more and more fires in these areas. Yep, that's exactly it. And I think what I also say is the the percent of, of wildfires that are man-made have gone up in the 11 years that mm. I've been here. Mm-hmm. And so... The other part of that is not only are there more structures and there more exposure to be damaged in these fires, there's more people in those areas that could even potentially cause fires. So it's a kind of a double whammy. Yeah, I think, you know, in the social media age that we're in right now, I mean, one of these large fires that happened a few years ago was started by a gender reveal and somebody threw like flames up into the air and that started a wildfire. So I think, you know, we're starting to see more and more things like that that are happening that, you know, to your point, 10 years ago, we didn't really see events being started like that. Yep, exactly. Okay. Um, So I guess, is it safe to say, even though, you know, a place like my house, which has a risk score of 22, is it fair to say that even in low risk areas, there's always some level of risk, always? Yeah, that's exactly it. And and we're seeing that, um, you know, again, the issue about you know low risk does not mean no risk is more than just wildfire. That it, this really applies mm-hmm. to many of the uh, the hazards that we we talk about. And mm-hmm. I always use the example of a flood. Sure. You yeah. know when a flood happens, it'll start in the areas of high risk where that are lower elevation. As the flood waters rise, they impact areas that are lower lower risk. And so in in the you know the hundred year events, you're seeing you know the the, the waters rise to a level that they, you know, only get to, you know, 1% of the time. So sure. you will continue to see as these events get, get worse and like a flood event, for example, the water's getting higher and higher, which is mm-hmm. impacting lower risk areas. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with, with wildfires is, you know, the, they generally, the fires will, will pretty much always start in vegetation that is high risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as they get bigger with winds and, and other, other forces that are, that are happening, they will spread in, into lower risk areas. That's just the nature of natural catastrophes. And that's, that's, that's what they are. May Claire and Howard spent this episode talking about wildfire risk, how it's calculated and how it's evolving. In next week's episode, the conversation will continue as they talk about the role mitigation plays in reducing wildfire risk and how climate change is influencing wildfires. See you there. All right. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, our facts guru Erica Stanley, and social media duo Sarah Buck and Michaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another Core Conversation. You still there? Well, thanks for sticking around. Are you curious to know a little bit more about our guest today? Well, Howard Kunst is the chief actuary at CoreLogic. He works on the science and analytics team, and he provides a variety of analytical services to the insurance industry and other clients. He also provides market and industry insights in support of product development, sales, marketing, and thought leadership. You can find him speaking at various conferences throughout the U.S., Find out where he'll be next by reaching out to our team at insurance solutions at corelogic.com.